Anyways, welcome to today's episode of Thoughts and Swears. I'm Eric. Uh, our co-host is Garrett. And today we're going to be exploring some book that Garrett has read on psychology and how it affects, or how it is affected rather, by technology and just our modern cell phone covered world. So let's get into it. Thoughts and swears. Lit. Hello. Did did we say what number the episode was? Or is that just Oh, it's episode down? six. Episode six. So I read this this pretty sick book by Nicholas Carr, C-A-R-R called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Or it's actually called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Why um, why The Shallows? You know, I, I realized what it meant <laughs> when I was reading the book, and now I totally <laughs> forgot about what it meant. No, yeah, that's... We'll, we'll maybe get to that part. Um, okay. But this is kind of just like a a Sparknotes-esque version of... I basically just read the whole book, write, wrote down pages that I thought were interesting, and then went back through and did like a big write-up of all of the stuff that I thought was really cool. So a lot of this is really just extracted out of the book and tried to be spun off in an interesting way. A lot of quotes and stuff, but... Uh, but yeah, it'll be it'll be a long one, so strap in. Um, and yeah, it's the the continuation of the last book that I read. That um, what did we cover on that? That was basically yeah. We basically covered. Um, I remember we covered like the introduction. And just kind of like some general psychology things. Yeah, like we talked about internet. Freudian slips. I remember, and just how yeah. oh, it was it was how our brains are connected with synapses, and yeah, kind of how how the whole how our plastic our brains are, and how much they change due to things that you do in environment and the things that you learn and and whatnot. Um, so then this is more of the actual implementations more science behind it um and how the internet the web and technology is changing our brains rather than just from a, a more specific kind of look at it so we'll start off with uh some some interesting facts about the internet by 2009, adults in North America were spending an average of about 12 hours online a week, which was double the average that people spent in 2005. And if you consider only those people who actually have internet access and can get on the internet, it was 17 hours per week. And for hmm. younger adults, adults, the figure is even higher with people in their 20s spending around 19 hours a week online. And then children ages 2 to 11 were spending 11 hours a week online in 2009, which was an, an increase of more than 60% since 2004. And people tend to spend around an average of 30% of their leisure time online, 
with uh, surprise, surprise, the Chinese being the highest throughout the world. Uh, Why is that surprise, surprise? <laughs> no, it's just very obvious. <laughs> like Chinese people are hella into their tech and shit. Um, uh, <laughs> and all these times don't even include the amount of time that people spend using their mobile phones. And now really? texting is one of the most common uses of a computer. And in 2009, the average American sent 400 texts a month, and the average teen sent 2,272 texts a month, which I don't know where I'd probably stand in that. I'm probably at like five to 600 a month, maybe more. Yeah. I don't know. I I'm no probably, idea. huh, I'm probably a lot, I'd say like 1,000 a month, 1,200. Yeah. And it's it's also assumed that the time we spend on the internet takes away from the time we like watch TV, but that's actually not really true. Most studies show that with the use of the internet, also there is either like watching TV stays the same, or watching TV also increases with internet use. And people spend around um, 153 hours a month on average watching TV. And some studies show that users would even look at a television, a computer, and a phone at the same time, um, but usually only like two out of the three. So I, uh, I, I, I do all three. So <laughs> yeah, when, that's a when real I read thing. that, I was like, <laughs> Eric, that's that's Eric. This I know so many people who who throw a TV show on a Netflix and then whip out their phone and scroll through Instagram or Twitter while also looking at, at the TV. Um, so my, my question is when you say TV, you just mean like watching a show or a movie, like a streaming service counts as TV, right? Yeah. So literally okay. just like anything that cable or, or dish or whatever. Okay, I just wanted to clarify because streaming services are a weird gray area, in my opinion. Uh, and then studies say that younger generations just really don't read anymore. More that like actual not reading of like Snapchat story things on your phone, but <laughs> sitting down and like whipping at a book and reading. It's down to about twenty minutes a week on average, which. I would assume most people don't even are at like zero. I would guess that that's a very much a, there's a group of people that read 50 hours a week. And then mm -hmm. there's a group of people that read zero and 20 just happens to be where those yeah. average out. Yeah. I feel like if you're an, if you're an avid reader, you're an avid reader. There's not really much in between in my personal experience. Like there are points in my life where I would read all the time and points in my life where I just would not read at all. Mm -hmm. And to put this in perspective, all of these statistics are over 10 years old. So some studies nowadays show that teenagers spend nine plus hours a day in front of a screen with a subset of adults really following suit, especially if your job resolves or revolves around a computer screen. So we use the internet a lot as most people already really know. And yeah. this obviously has massive implications on how our brains are wired, giving us extremely short attention spans, making anything that isn't 
bright or shiny or funny or supposedly supposedly important, something that's good news or bad news, something that isn't attractive people, isn't something fun, kind of makes everything else seem dull and boring. And if it doesn't, if the internet doesn't attempt to invoke some sort of emotion in us, it feels like if something doesn't invoke some sort of emotion in us, it feels like a chore or a waste of time. And our devices make every moment we are away or disconnected from them cause like this anxiety. And even if we use our devices, it can also lead to anxiety or subsequent depression with chronic, chronic use. And, uh, Female teens who use social media for more than five hours a day have a 50% higher chance to have depressive symptoms, while males have a 30% higher chance to have depressive symptoms. And the correlation to causation of this is not is still kind of relatively unclear, but there's definitely something to be said about chronic use of social media and depression. Although yeah. I... I don't know anyone who uses social media for over five hours a day. Uh, that's that's like um, a lot. Yeah, no, that is a lot. Five hours. Yeah. I huh. mean, I guess if you're sitting in front of a TV and you're for two hours, I guess you could count that as two hours. And then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I think the younger generation is definitely are are more chronic users than older generations. But for our age of students, a study at UPenn was done where they found that decrease of social media leads to significant decreases in depression and loneliness, which is really kind of the opposite of what you feel like it's doing when you're using social media. So, yeah, it's that's interesting. It's I mean yeah, like the correlation and causation still isn't necessarily there. There's a lot of other factors that have to do with it, but using social media a lot definitely has has some consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll hop over to the internet and basically what the internet exactly is and why we like to use it all the time. Uh, the internet is basically in a simpler sense, just a bunch of links to a different pages that you go to. You search something on Google, gives you a bunch of links. You click a link, you can go back, click another link, or click a link on that page. And interactivity, hyperlinking, searchability, multimedia are all of the attractive qualities that the net provides, paired with the just unprecedented amount of information available on the internet is just kind of makes this irresistible pastime and we like to be able to switch between reading and listening and watching without having to get up and turn on some different appliance or dig through a pile of magazines or discs we like everything to be instantly available at our fingertips with minimal effort and we want to be in touch with our friends and family we want to connect to others and the internet doesn't really change our habits against our will but it definitely does change our habits if like for example if you don't have internet for a day your day is going to look a whole lot different than if you did have internet that day Hmm. 
like, yeah, if I don't have internet, I, I usually am more pushed to go do something outside or go hang out with friends more or I read to, a book. Yeah. I have to look right. to like external sources to, to get that dopamine hit. Um, <laughs> On, and our use of the internet will really only grow and grow and the impact that it has on our lives will will likely strengthen. Um, and the internet also kills how like DVDs aren't a thing anymore, how music's distributed, how we engage in art, how we watch multimedia and how we read um, as well as many, many other things. And we really have no idea what's to come for future generations in kind of the field of the internet. Yeah. Um, the internet delivers a, a steady stream of inputs to our, our visual and our somatosensory, which somatosensory is, it's like the, uh, a vibration of your phone would be one example. So it delivers inputs through our visual um, touch and auditory cortices. Um, and there are sensations that come through our hands and fingers as we click and scroll, touch and type on our devices. And there are a bunch of different types of audio signals like chimes or emails or messages or various ringtones that we associate with different aspects of our tech, trying to inform us of what's going on. Um, and the internet provides a high speed system for delivering responsive responses and rewards, um, like positive reinforcements, which encourage the repetition of both physical and mental actions. So like try, try using the internet without clicking on any links other than the page that you're on or try scrolling through Instagram and never clicking on someone's profile or on someone's picture. It's not nearly enjoyable and feels really constricting. Uh, when we click on a link, we get something new to look at, something new to evaluate. When we Google a keyword, we, re we receive an, a blink of an eye, a list of interesting information to observe. And when, when we send a text or email, we often get replied to in seconds or minutes. And when we use Facebook, we attract new friends or find old friends again. When we tweet or post, we gain followers. The internet's interactivity gives us powerful new tools for finding all sorts of information, expressing ourselves and conversing with others. And it really just turns us into lab rats, constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social or intellectual nourishment. Um, our brains love more information, more impressions and more complexity. It's why we can get sucked into a technology. It's why we like to read Wikipedia, watch YouTube videos, play video games. The internet is essentially the world's biggest distraction. It sucks you into this tunnel of distraction and begs for your attention and then fragments your attention on 50 different things at one time. And although not all distractions are necessarily bad, as most of us know from experience, if we get sucked in, into a situation where we are stuck in a rut on a problem, like a math problem or computer science or doing homework or something like that, or you can't decide between A or B in some big life decision, that sleeping on it can actually be useful and coming back with a fresh outlook and for like 
it gives you this new burst of creativity. And studies by this guy named App, like this name is absolutely crazy. It's A.P. Dejecarius. What? Uh, just, just butchered <laughs> that so hard. It's Dutch. He's he's a Dutch psychologist who okay. heads a uh, an unconscious lab in uh, the, at the University of Nijmegen, I believe is, is somehow you'd pronounce that, <laughs> and. Uh, he indicates that breaks in our attention gives our unconscious mind time to kind of grapple with a problem. Um, his studies show we usually make better decisions if we shift our attention from a difficult task for a time. Yet when using the internet, our brains are like distracted from distraction by distraction. And it doesn't really relieve our subconscious mind to wander and like work on those ideas unconsciously it just crams it full of a bunch of bullshit interesting um researchers have concluded that our brains are massively remodeled by exposure to technology and in quotes their heavy use has neurological consequences the time we spend like Surfing, Facebook, texting, using Twitter, Instagram, reading Wikipedia snippets, watching YouTube videos and Netflix. It crowds out things like reading books, having actual conversations, spending time with loved ones, spending time in our own thoughts, spending time in quiet reflection, contemplation, and the amount of time that we exercise and are outdoors. So... Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are neurological consequences that, I mean, they they might be good or bad, but how our brains are wired is massively switched around when our priorities are changed um, with exposure to the internet. And when we stop doing things that we used to do, the brain recycles these neurons and synapses for other more pressing work, such as the supposed work that you're doing on the internet. And we gain new perspectives and skills, but we lose old ones. I mean, that just makes sense. Yeah. Because you only have so much brain. Whatever you do is what it's going to prioritize, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, and and here's some studies that kind of like back up that um, there was a presentation that this one study group did on the the country of Mali, and mm-hmm. some used a multimedia kind of PowerPoint format to have this group study from, and the other group studied from just plain text, and then they did a multiple choice test after these people studied the plain text or the PowerPoint for a certain amount of time. And the people who use the PowerPoint got an average of five out of 10 of the multiple choice questions, right? And the people who used the plain text got seven out of 10 multiple choice questions, right? So it goes to show that things that distract us, like colors in a PowerPoint or pictures from the actual information that we are trying to learn, it, it steals from the learning that we receive. And our brains can only handle so many inputs at one time before they get overloaded. So if you're reading through a text and it has hyperlinks in it, 
if you click on it, it will take you somewhere else that probably has nothing to do with what you're looking for, or even having your brain make the choice of clicking the link or not clicking the link takes away from the amount of information that your brain can process. And uh, an experiment in 1990 revealed that hypertext readers often could not remember what they had or had not read, and their memories were scattered and fragmented compared to those who had just read text without hyperlinks. And even having, like, you know, when you watch Fox News or CNN and there's the, the, the logo at the bottom that kind of moves and there's the scrolling text that comes through that shows like random stories that are going on. Um, I find myself always reading that all the time. Uh, that that like just completely distracts what the newscaster is saying. And if you watch news that way, you are just receiving way less information because your brain's overloaded from all of those inputs. And it's kind of like the attention capacity thing or the how phone numbers are made where the, the like seven plus or minus two that it's kind of similar to that where you can only hold so much in your brain at one time. Um, but not everything that you get out of the internet is dark. There's actually been, been studies that playing video games um, increase more primitive functions such as hand-eye coordination, uh, reflex response time, uh, the ability to process visual cues, uh, veteran game video, veteran video game players kind of identify more items in their visual field than novices can. And even though playing video games may seem rather mindless, it is capable of actually radically altering the visual attentional processing, um, hmm. which is, which is fascinating. But, and uh, yeah, they've done like brain scans on people who've been playing video games and like your whole brain just lights up massively. And within, I, I think there's another study done where within just 10 hours of playing video games, they could notice new neural connections being made uh, throughout the brain. Interesting. 10 hours, really? Yeah, like a crazy, crazy That's short fast. amount of time that you can have. Uh, I'll kind of get into that later and okay. kind of the more details of that. It's, it's really cool how it works. Um, and surfing the web can actually increase problem-solving skills as well as pattern recognition. Uh, it may lead to a small expansion in the capacity of your working memory, actually, which mm -hmm. means being better at like juggling multiple different types of data in your head. And it mm -hmm. trains your brain to be good at analyzing information, focusing your attention under distraction, and almost in instantaneously deciding to click a link, read a snippet, or press go back. So it just kind of increases your ability to whip around a bunch of different pages. Like if you watch some old person, like a 75-year-old, try and use the internet, they're like, oh, uh, what do I click on next? And they like, <laughs> have, have no idea what they're doing. And are just really slow about going through it. But if you look like a four-year-old using an iPad, they're like just whipping around on that thing. Yeah, um, kids on kids on phones and stuff is incredible. 
it's like I, I was pretty good and I'm pretty good at using a phone, but when you start using them at like the age of two, that's just a whole nother level than than what I was able to do. Um, and our brains get better at the tasks that it needs to do on a computer, and it does take time to learn them. And as I was saying, like kids seem to learn them really quickly because theoretically maybe their brains are are more plastic and adult brains are less plastic. So adults tend to have a lot harder of a time um, using technology. Uh, like my, my dad has probably used technology about as much as I have, I would say, but mm -hmm. I'm just way better at it than he is just because I don't know, you, you get stuck in these, these old ideas of how things work and it's probably harder to learn. Um, and I also think there's a, uh, there's a language of technology that older yeah. generations don't know. Like anyone that's like millennial to little four-year-old on their iPad, they know what a settings button looks like. It's a button with some kind of gear on it. Mm -hmm. And okay. Yeah. That's the settings button. Easy. You get a new device, a brand new device. Uh, I'm going to go settings there. That's the first thing. Change my color to black or whatever. Like it's the easiest thing for young people to do. Uh -huh. But when my mom gets on her phone, mom, go to the settings. What's that? What What do you mean? What's that? It's the settings. <laughs> like it's something that's so ingrained that I can't even like, you can't describe what yeah. the settings is to someone. It's the settings. <laughs> Yeah, there are certain aspects of web or computers that I know to be inherently true that my mm -hmm. parents have no idea it's even a thing. Like that's that's a great example. And I don't even think I don't even think it's just like the they don't know like that language. Like yeah. I don't know what to call it other than a language, but the settings button is the gear. The brightness is the slider bar with the yeah. bright light on one and the like, it's just recognizing symbols because they're so recycled throughout technology. That yeah, I took a, a class when I was in London that we basically, a computer science class that it was just like how to design a user interface that just went over all that. And there's like a huge standardized book essentially out there that has like, this is what you use if you want to represent sound. This is what you use if you want to represent settings. This mm -hmm. is the symbol you use for this, the color you use for this, the button shape you use for this. There, And we've just been taught this so-called language, as you called it. Yeah. And we, we've just understood it way quicker because it's been in our lives more than... Because instead of... When we were kids, instead of learning a second language like Spanish or whatever, we learned this. That's, like, you know what I mean? It's just a true. literacy we have. And we did it not even, not even real. We did it mm -hmm. in enjoying it. It wasn't a task for us to, like, I was just fascinated by computers. And if I could manipulate them in some way, I thought that was really interesting. But if I'm to do that now, or my parents, they just like, they just got better shit to do. It, it just seems annoying. It's like if a child grows up in a house with two languages, they'll learn it. But uh -huh. instead of a second language, we had computers and everyone had one. So it's a massive shared knowledge base, yeah. basically.
pretty much. And as we spend more time navigating the vast quantity of information online, many of us are developing neural circuitry that is customized for rapid and incisive spurts of directed attention. As we keep practicing surfing, browsing, scanning, multitasking, our plastic brains become better and better at those tasks. And using the internet is kind of, as we were saying, like is a skill and younger generations tend to be much better at it than older. Mm -hmm. And the importance of having the skills to use the internet and various technologies shouldn't be taken lightly as it really makes up a vast majority of the jobs that are available in America. Uh, it's needed for personal use. It's needed to learn. It's needed for college as well as a, a ton of other stuff. And the practical benefits of the web is the reason why we spend so much time on it. If you need to get somewhere, if you need to find some information on something or simply you're bored, the internet is there for you with the breadth of information mm -hmm. on anything. And it's like, it's like your grandma not knowing how to add her friend as a contact in her phone. Like that's just such a simple thing that I know how to do, but for someone like her who doesn't know how to do that, it's a pain in the ass. So it's a great skill to have in this day and age. And most people really don't have a problem with it other than the older generation. Um, but it'd be kind of a big mistake to look at the internet's benefits and ignore any negative impacts it has to include that just the internet is making us more intelligent. It makes us better at lightly understanding things and becoming superficially informed on subjects. Uh, when we mm -hmm. multitask online, we're becoming really good at knowing everything, but understanding nothing. And there's a quote from uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca, who who I've only barely heard of. He's not not a, doesn't get a lot of attention. But two thousand year, years though. ago, he wrote, "To be everywhere is to be nowhere," and that's pretty representative of how we surf and learn on the internet yeah so that's the that's the web kind of offshoot the world wide that, web that, that i had um but yeah it's 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 fascinating how much it changes us and yeah we, we have no idea what's in store for the future so um and the next thing i have is called the the chapter was called the church of google hmm it's a, that sounds fun yes yes it does so in the late 1800s frederick winslow taylor carried a stopwatch into the midvale steel plant in philadelphia and began a historic series of experiments aimed at boosting the efficiency of the plant's machinists with the grudging approval of the factory owner, Taylor recruited a group of factory hands and set them to work on various metalworking machines and recorded and timed their every movement. Breaking down each job into a sequence of small steps and then testing different ways of performing them. He created a set of precise instructions and algorithm as algorithm as we would so call it today for mm -hmm. each worker and how they should work. 
and Midvale's employees grumbled about the strict regimen, claiming that it turned them into little more than automatons. But these factories' productivity soared. And when the Industrial Revolution came around, Taylor's system was embraced by manufacturers, manufacturers throughout the country and in time throughout the whole entire world. Mm-hmm. And Taylorism, as, as this idea is coined, is that the idea of maximum efficiency using scientific data uh, collection methods. Yeah, you, you essentially time a bunch of stuff use scientific methods and find out the maximum efficiency you could possibly have for doing X, Y, or Z. Yeah. It's just a, uh, a designed process, which there's an entire, like the entire manufacturing field in engineering as a larger like section of work. The entire manufacturing part is basically that it's how can we do this better? Yeah, pretty much. And a quote by him, which is is a little chilling, is uh, in the past the man has been first; in the future the system must be first. Ooh, which, that's communist. Which is very <laughs> representative to how our society is today. The it's all about the system, not about the human being. Mm-hmm. No, and, I agree with that. And Taylor's system is still very much in use today. Um, for example, the the Googleplex, which is the Google headquarters in the Silicon Valley, is the Internet's high church. And the religion practice behind the walls of the Googleplex happens to be Taylorism. Uh, Eric Schmidt, the current, I believe he's still the current CEO of Google, as far as I know, he is. At the time of writing this book, he was. But uh, Google, he said, is founded around the science of measurement, striving to systemize everything it does. We try to be data-driven and quantify everything. What Taylor essentially did for the work of our hands, Google is doing for the work of our minds. And even though web pages may seem to be simple there are billions and billions of dollars of work put into them where things are located on the page what colors they are the size of the font google uses a technique called it's kind of have you ever heard of a b testing or a b pruning in machine learning no uh, I have well not. it's like you use different you have a set of different permutations from the original that's slightly different and basically it's kind of how genetics works whichever one works the best or is okay. closest to what you're looking for then that's the one you use yeah. so for example uh you would use these different permutations of web pages to like if i visited some page it would look just a little bit different than when you visited it and they would collect our data on how we use the page and how we navigated it. And then they would do whichever one worked better. They would do some little permutations off of that one. So you create this like tree of best web page. And then you do that for a very long time in very small little increments. And then you get the best web page that has the highest chance for you to click on stuff, the highest chance for you to click on ads. 
that high you spend the most time there yeah or i mean they don't really want you to spend the most time there they want you to navigate really quickly so they can Mm. get more ad revenue or yeah they can basically just manipulate the web page to make people do whatever they want and in one famous trial the company tested 41 different shades of blue on its toolbar to see which shade drew more clicks from visitors and they do similar procedures on every single page on google i'm sure i'm sure that now that they're like really getting into like quantum and AI and stuff, they're running millions of permutations. Oh easily, yeah. If not billions, like they're, they're going to work there at Google. Um, and in 1933, Neil Postman in his book, Technopoly wrote down the main ideas of Taylor's system of scientific management. Taylorism, he wrote, is founded on six assumptions. The primary, if not the only goal of human labor and thought is efficiency. That technical calculation is in all respects superior to human judgment. That in fact, human judgment cannot be trusted because it is plagued by laxity and unnecessary complexity. That subjectivity is an obstacle to clear thinking that what cannot be measured either does not exist or is of no value at all, and that the affairs of citizens are best guided and conducted by experts. Hmm. The only thing Google disagrees with is the affairs of citizens should not only be conducted by experts, but expert software algorithms, which is what Taylor would have believed if powerful computers had been around during his day. Yes. The... um... Yeah, go. The the only problem I have, well, a couple problems. Um, I have a problem with how he says if something can't be measured, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a uh, a bold statement. Yeah, because and... like before, people understood the concept of a gas. Uh, like the atmosphere doesn't. But the thing exist is, it could be much. measured. No, I'm talking literally like ancient Rome, like walking around, like, yeah. why is the wind blowing? God. <laughs> um, like, I think that's just very... Uh, I mean, just I think that's just taken out of... He, he's just having the scientific viewpoint on it. Yeah. Like, if you can't measure how much time it takes for someone to do something like don't like there's there's no value in it i uh i do agree with his comments on efficiency and how like it's super important Mm -hmm. but i uh i think that sometimes human intuition is more important than pure logic though because in order for pure logic to work you have to have all the data Mm -hmm. but human intuition Sometimes your subconscious remembers something or like you remember something that like wouldn't be a data input into the logic, essentially. Like you have some, like, I think humans are just so good at gathering data that they don't even fully understand themselves that the intuition you feel can sometimes be more more effective because it has way more inputs than any computer could possibly have. Yeah. 
Like think- just now we're training computers to recognize people and they're getting good at it. But the moment a human baby is born, it can recognize its mother. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's so much information that humans can intake um, that I think that's one area that he's flawed in that reason. We'll also get into that as well in this podcast. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um yeah, I mean, he does say that the affairs of citizens are guided and conducted best by experts. So well, I mean, he's that's not what saying, we are right now. Yeah, he's not saying only rely on tech. Like, he, I mean, he's not really saying tech in this situation, but only rely on this scientific method of Taylorism. And but it should be at the knees of expert, like a few people who really, really know what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, I totally, I totally get your points and, and Google as its CEO states wants to take all the information in the world and make it universally accessible. Uh, this mission will take at a current estimate around 300 years, they think, but it's more immediate goal is to make the best search engine in the world. Not even the best search engine, but the perfect search engine, as Smith quotes. Something that understands exactly what you mean and gives you back exactly what you want. In the view of Google, information is a kind of commodity, a utilitarian resource that can and should be mined, then subsequently processed with great efficiency to extract more useful conclusions at a rapid rate. The more information that they can get their hands on, the better. And the information they do indeed get there, or, and the information they get, they, they literally collect everything, essentially. Anything that you do on the internet, mouse tracks, clicks, everything you type, they collect everything. And anything that stands in the way of the speedy collection, dissection, and transmission of the data is a threat not only to Google's business, but the new utopia of cognitive efficiency that it aims to construct on the internet. I mean, um, yeah. So they, they are just data hungry because everything they get their hands on ha- can potentially make them more money, can kind of like just further this religion of Google. And now I'll kind of just talk about how Google got started because I wasn't super familiar with this myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Google was born out of this analogy of sorts. Uh, one of its founders, Larry Pages, Larry Page, I think that was his name. There was some other guy that started it with him, but I think Larry, had he had the first idea of starting Google. And his current net worth as of right now, Larry Pages, is $60 billion. Mm. It's a bit It's a bit of cash, you know. Eh, he's, nowhere near Bill Gates, so. <laughs> nowhere near Bill Gates, but still a bit of, bit of cash. And uh, he was your typical, like, computer prodigy at a young age, fascinated with tech. He... His dad was one of the, he was really big in AI, his dad was, so there was all kinds of technology around the house as he was growing up, so that kind of really helped. 
get him fascinated with tech. Um, and then he went to Michigan State and was head of the Engineering Honor Society there. And then after he graduated, he eventually headed to Stanford for his PhD in computer science. And after you have to like decide on your dissertation when you're getting a PhD. So he had like a couple of months to kind of decide what he wanted to do for that. And at this time, the World Wide Web was mm -hmm. blowing up and there were about half a million sites up and running on the web with around 100,000 plus being added every month. And Page realized that links on web pages were kind of the same thing as citations for an academic paper. And when, like, for example, when a scholar writes his own paper, he references the other papers and kind of usually uses ones of significant value because you want to use other work that is also significant to make yours significant. Um, and the more a paper is referenced, the more relevant and trusted it is. Mm -hmm. And when one web page is linked to another, that web page is stating that it thinks the other web page is important. So what if you took this idea and you made a search engine out of it? You put the web pages in combination with keywords closest to the top. So the most relevant and popular pages are the ones that show up first. So the things that have the most references, the web pages that have the most links to other web pages and vice versa are the ones that show up first. So he dropped out of Stanford and started the search engine today that we know as Google behind this idea of prioritizing web pages that are linked. And, but now Google uses over 200 different criteria to sort web pages in a search that is they're using, I think, yeah, it's like 210 now and they add more and more all the time. Um, and as we know, Google has became fabulously successful, but like any other business, it needed to create revenue. And I think the first couple years that Google was out, they, they didn't have any ads because they didn't want to like muddy people not using it. So it eventually started doing ads and they used this same idea of on ads so that the, the ads that were clicked more often were the ads that showed up more often. So mm -hmm. any ads that sucked and no one clicked on or they weren't interested in, they would come like get out of filtered out of the system pretty, pretty quickly. And by the end of 2000, the 2000s, Google was taking in more than like 22 billion in sales every year from advertising. I think most of it was from advertising and they turned a profit of about $8 billion. And at that time, at the end of the 2000s, Paige and Bryn, which is the other co-founder of Google, uh, were both worth $10 billion. And now 10 mm. years later, six times more money. So Yeah, Google has... I guess just the the idea of a search engine, like, it just is Google. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you just don't think of Bing. When you think of a search engine, it's, it's Google. And just how that, it's just, I guess the thing I'm struggling with is I've never lived in an era where I didn't have a search engine, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have any memories of not being able to Google something, which is kind of weird because I just now I'm realizing that. 
Um, yeah. But then the, uh, like the concept of you type in a string of words and the things with the most of those words pop up first. The fact that that was revolutionary is kind of wild because I mean, that wasn't the fact that he, I mean, that was part of the algorithm too, but he yeah. mainly prioritized how many links that that webpage had. Huh? Okay. Which would mean that it was more so like if you created a web page about the the brain and no one linked it ever, mm-hmm. no one ever read it, then that would never show up in the feed. But if you had some web page on biology and all like a hundred other web pages provided links to yours, they were saying like the this flower, blah, 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 you can read more here and link to your web page. If a mm-hmm. bunch of people did that, then your web page would be highly prioritized to show first. Yeah. Okay. No, that so makes that more sense. Why it was revolutionary? Yeah, that was his gotcha. kind of revolutionary part of it. But then, yeah, there's way more complex stuff that. Oh yeah. They use now. It's that nowadays. There's possible political bias. Like, who the fuck mm-hmm. knows what they're doing? <laughs> and they they can control it too, and they get in trouble for filtering out stuff all the time, and yeah making people's oh, yeah. web pages harder to get to making people's like donation campaigns easier to get to etc cetera, etc cetera. They, they have a lot of control um and and now google is is amazing i i would be very unhappy if it vanished one day and i use almost every product that's been created by Google besides their phones, I think. Yeah. Like I use Google Drive. I use I use all that stuff. Um, their phones are pretty good. Um, you yeah, might and well their phones are great. integration, you know. I mean, iPhones are pretty solid, but uh, one, one day maybe Google phones will get there. I, I honestly think that smartphones nowadays, it doesn't matter which you yeah. buy. It's honestly, literally just preference. Cause it's all close. Oh, my phone has one more megapixel. Oh, well, mine has more storage. Like, mm-hmm. shut the fuck up. It's just, they even look the same. Like, if it has a 4K like, screen, it has, like, a fingerprint, just some type of way to open it without typing it in. And, like, yeah, they all a have decent the same front and back stuff. camera. Like, there is no difference, in my opinion. I am. I'm kind of excited for the new Essential phone that got leaked. Yeah. So the first Essential phone, it was just like a cheap Android phone, but it was made with, like, really good stuff. They just didn't do any. It was, like, very bare bones and minimalistic. So it was more affordable. Cool. And like I, I see the name well. and what it what it's trying to do. That makes, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and they're good phones. Like, my dad has one and loves it. Like, they're fantastic cell phones. Um, like, obviously, it's not going to be good as, like, the iPhone 11 because they're, like, four years old now or more. But the yeah. fact that they still work after four years, like, hey, that's better than most mainstream. Like, if you're rocking a Samsung S8 or S9 right now, like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, it's going to be slow and shitty because they have planned obsolescence like Apple. Um, yeah. I mean, do they? I feel like Apple yeah. kind of got in oh, trouble yeah. for that, but did they kind of? They didn't really get in trouble. They still do it. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I don't. People I don't still buy it. their phones. Nobody cares. Um, yeah. But the 
so essential is coming out with their second phone uh-huh. and it's apparently going to be a phone designed entirely for vocal interface. What? So it's going to be like, it's basically so you got like a Siri, a, but it's basically just going to be super small and not like be good for typing on or anything. It's just going to have a kick ass vocal assistant. Like, so you basically just be like, text someone this, call this, and then that would check my calendar for two o'clock. Like, literally anything. And like, it has a screen, so you can watch stuff. Um, If you want to Google it, it's the essential gem or G E M. I'm not sure if it's like an acronym or what, but that's like their code name for it. And uh, I think it's like this skinny phone. Yeah, it's really skinny and like cool. It looks like it would fit in a pocket nice. Like, I, yeah, I, I just think it's that. a... Because I've, I've been looking for a way to, like, not use my phone as much. So, mm-hmm. yeah, as, as we have talked, like, deleted social media and stuff like that. But if I could get a phone that was just a minimalist phone that, yeah. like, most importantly, Maps. That's a, that's a huge one for me. I need Maps and I need to be able to text and call people. And take notes. And that's really about it. Mm-hmm. And I, um, yeah, I, I'm i actually going to buy this gem when it comes out. I don't even think they've announced a date. Yeah, um, I may. That might be my next phone. I'll just be needing a new phone around then if it comes out in the next year and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just like it, though, because it's not the, oh, yep, here is this year's now in new colors, but they're the same colors. We just renamed them um, <laughs> and slapped an extra phone lens or a camera lens on it somewhere. Yeah, I think. But, hey, are... spend a thousand dollars on it. It's the pro edition. Like people ooh. are clearly just not. They're just over that bullshit for the yeah. most part. Which I think just, is good for the market. You can, you you're can only get phones like the gem. Yeah. <laughs> You can only trick your consumers so many times before they realize, man, this phone is just the same one as my last one. Anyway, questioning business practices that we were talking about, back to Google. Yes. (laughs) Um, I think that questioning the motives and the business practices of big companies and Google is extremely important. And... Google's goal is to get the user in and out really quickly when they're surfing the web. All of Google's design decisions are based on that strategy, essentially. Profits are tied directly to the velocity of people's information intake. More web pages, more web page visits, more ads, more links means more ads. Deeper engagement is not a priority at all. And the opportunity it has to collect information on us the more opportunity it has to collect information on us, the better. And how can we get them to surf faster is questions that Google asks all the time. How can we get them to click more, link more, navigate faster, and on and on. And the last thing the company wants is to encourage leisurely or slow reading or concentrated thought. Google is quite literally in the business of distraction. And so much more information. There's, there's a bunch of stuff about Google in the book, essentially. But 
I, I, there's only so much that I can talk about in this time. So you'd have to just read it, but I'm just going to spit off some kind of the fun facts that I learned while reading the rest of this chapter. Oof, we do um, love fun facts. Yeah. Little did I know YouTube doesn't actually make them any money. Huh? They, they bought it for $1.65 billion and they lose about a few hundred million a year on it. But the reason why they can justify running YouTube, it is allows them to collect more information Mm. on users. It allows them to funnel more of their users towards its search engine and to essentially prevent would be competitors from gaining footholds in the YouTube video market. Um, eh, I believe it. So, so, so that's that's pretty interesting. But yeah, they they lose a few hundred million on YouTube every year, which is kind of makes sense because they re didn't they refactor how people get paid on YouTube and people get paid less now or something like that? They changed yeah, the I algorithm so. or whatever how it works. I don't know. YouTubers who are complaining about it for a while, but shut the fuck up your job is to make youtube videos like <laughs> it's hard it's difficult to make youtube videos yeah not... but that's it's stupid like that's not a job that's not... <laughs> I, you know what i mean supplying. like yeah it's... in some ways yes some of the youtube videos i think are absolutely stupid and but if something like puts out relatively cool or interesting information but like a lot of the people on youtube like pewdiepie or or just people who are yeah the most famous people the most famous people are just because they're attractive or like good at promoting themselves basically yeah yeah pretty much but yeah youtube youtube's its own little hole um and google wants information to essentially be free because as the cost of information falls, we all spend a lot more time looking up all that information online. Mm. And this project that I think I barely heard about before, but I, yeah, anyway, the most ambitious project that Google started was called Moonshot. And its goal was to take every book ever written and digitally upload it into an online library. And it would be later called Google Book Search, which, yeah, I think I heard of it when it came out, but I it kind of just like disappeared. And they initially had partners such as like the uh, university presses of Oxford and Cambridge and hmm. Princeton and uh, like McGraw-Hill and a bunch of other publishers. And by the end of the year that they first started it, they had an estimated of 100,000 books in the digital bank of the library that they had. Yeah. But there was one problem with how they, they did this. They were not only uploading books that were old and out of copyright, but they were uploading books that were under copyright protection. And Google made it blatantly clear that it had no intention of tracking down and securing the rights to the books in advance. And their policy was essentially copy everything. And if someone filed a lawsuit, settle with them and just keep going. I mean, yeah, that's that sounds so Silicon Valley. It's not even funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> so 
Google was trying to plow through the system and, and Google stated, imagine a cultural or imagine the cultural impact of putting tens of millions of previously unaccessible volumes into one vast index, every word of which is searchable by anyone rich and poor, urban and rural, first world and third, and of course, for entirely free. And this went on for a while and they eventually got enough resistance and enough lawsuits against them that they were forced to stop. Um, but people were essentially worried about how much of a monopoly Google would become and how much potential Ooh. control they would have. Like I mean, yeah. one company with a profit making enterprise around the monopoly monopoly on access to information is kind of too high of a risk. And mm. what if like Google's founders retired or they sold the company or they decided, oh, we're going to charge 10 bucks a month for you to access this library now. Um, the, the, the government just and companies just didn't want to give them that all priority access to that. Or so, what if Google decided to give all its technology to China, hmm, you know, yes. or foreign countries or yeah, what are they sharing it with? Like there's just too many unknowns around that. So the project's put on hold at the moment, but I have no doubt that it's just an inevitable thing. At some point, all books are just going to be online. That the, that on hold is probably in air quotes. It's probably going on <laughs> right now and they're just hiding it. Uh, it's, it's like realistically, that's possible. That that is definitely possible. Um, and Google has essentially let it be known that it won't be satisfied until it stores one hundred percent of users' data. Like they literally said this in public interviews. Yeah. We are not satisfied until we store one hundred percent of your data. They literally just don't give a shit about anything. And I always thought that Google was in the dark about a lot of the stuff that they were doing, but they don't, they literally just spurt it off in interviews all the time. And everything that I've been talking about and shit talking about on Google is completely public information. And the thing that concerns me the most is what they aren't openly talking about in public. Oh, yeah. And this guy, Richard Komen, which is like a lawyer and a tech writer, stated that Google has become a true believer in its own goodness, a belief with which justifies its own set of rules regarding corporate ethics, anti-competition, customer service, and its place in society. It's arguably the same as like the U.S. government. You know yes. what I mean? Like the U.S. government is researching all this crazy stuff. What are they not telling us about? <laughs> yeah. Like, are they yeah. genetically breeding like super soldiers? <laughs> I, I, I mean, know. China's probably doing it. So we're probably doing it, too. <laughs> if China's doing it, we're forced to do it. Just under. under they just the... hide it. Like, yeah. 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 That's how know. any powerful thing is, though. They. Yeah. I don't know. There's got to be some name for it. I don't think it's like God complex, but there has to be some name for when yeah. you think that your moral high ground is so much better than anything else. And you have the means to like basically just force it upon people. Mm -hmm. 
there has to be some name for that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I feel like it's something like God God complex or something like that. I think but God yeah, complex is like a personal level. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that would be for corporations and governments, but yeah. But it's also that these companies. I mean, Google split into like Alphabet and Google or whatever. Wasn't yeah, that because they were cool. they were so big? Or yeah, they basically to had to. I think the stocks or. Yeah, I, I mean, controlling a company that's that huge is so difficult. Like, the founders of it, th- their ideals aren't even what's happening now. There's so much stuff that's going on under their, well, or stuff that they kind of know about, but they kind of pretend they don't want to know about. And yeah, and that you can just like kind of push corruption on other people. And like, there's 100 people doing it. So like, you're not going to go to jail. And an example of uh, what happens when this goes wrong, and not like wrong where they're just doing secret stuff, but wrong where it affects the public, is uh, Boeing. Mm. Boeing is, oh yeah, Boeing planes. They make all the fucking planes. Like there's like two or three plane companies, and Boeing's the biggest one. Um, But so those Boeing 737 Maxes crashed. And I don't know why this hasn't been in the mainstream news or anything. Like, I've hardly heard anything about it. But Well, it has been a bit. No, but the degree it should be is very high compared to what it's been. They're definitely suppressing it. Number one, the FAA is supposed to regulate aeronautics in the United States. And by extent, I think a lot of their policies are used worldwide because they're very good at what they do, or at least they're supposed to be. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. The FAA allows Boeing to certify their own planes and jets as safe, essentially. What? Yes, the FAA literally says, Boeing, you do so much work in this. We don't have enough like funding and resources to look at everything, so just do it yourself. Huh. Yeah, and that, then that seems to lead to some problems. Because of that, this error didn't get caught and planes crashed and like 400 people died or something. Um but then, as it's been investigated even more, multiple memos and like emails and just various forms of communication from engineering teams have gone to like their superiors. Like, there's something wrong with this system. Like, we don't we we need more time to finish it. And then when mm-hmm. test pilots were in the simulator testing 737 Maxes, they're like, "Oh, there's something weird that happens and causes crashes." And, like, these probably aren't safe. And then they're like, nah, they're fine. Make them. Release them. Just send it. I mean, that's just the problem with the corporate company where you're trying to make your boss happy. Who wants to make his boss happy? Who wants to make his boss happy? But, like, people, the bosses were literally sent emails that said there's a flaw in this system. And they just yeah, didn't do shit about it. Why is that not? to push that paper. But why is that not in the news? It, like, It should be. People need to be aware of Boeing and Google and Facebook and what their what their technology is potentially like harming. Like they need to be shown for what they are, I think. But yeah, then again, they control the news, so Yeah, they can they control Yeah, if you search, if you search Google something bad, it's probably not gonna show up first on Google. That's like the amount of money that they can save just solely in the stock market by controlling the media, it's worth it to pour millions mm-hmm. of dollars. And 
media on controlling them. Because if some article gets out, your stock could plummet and you don't want that to happen. So you have to do something about that. That's like a huge threat as a company like that. So it's unethical no shit for sure. <laughs> that they suppress the amount of information that gets out. Um, 